how important are promises in your life? And we could think about that question in terms of promises that you make to other people. But instead, let's think for a moment about this in terms of promises that other people make to you. How important are those promises to you? How much weight do you give to those promises? How much do you trust those promises? And in answer to that, we would probably all say, well, it depends who's making the promises. If we're talking about the promises of politicians, for example, well, maybe we don't give very much weight to those promises. But what about marriage promises? In two weeks' time, there's going to be a marriage here in the church. Dan and Izzy will stand where I'm standing at the moment, and they will make significant promises to each other. They will promise lifelong faithfulness to each other. And because they know each other, because of that, each of them will put a lot of trust in what the other one promises. They will find a lot of security in hearing the other person promise lifelong faithfulness. That's one reason why people in marriage relationships often flourish and feel more contented than people who just cohabit without marriage. There is a much higher level of confidence in a relationship when the other person has been willing to stand up in front of a room full of witnesses and promise lifelong commitment to you. So we'd probably say we trust the promises of our spouse much more than we trust the promises of, say, politicians. But even then, as some of you know from very painful experience, even the promises of a spouse, even their public promise to be faithful can sometimes prove to be untrustworthy. And that kind of untrustworthiness can burn us. It can burn us much more than when a politician breaks a promise. The hurt is greater when the broken promise comes from someone close to us and dear to us. And that can leave us a bit cynical about promises, a bit wary of trusting promises. So then, if we go on and ask the question, how important are God's promises in your life? How would we answer that? Does our skepticism about human promises carry over into the way we treat God's promises? Even as we sing about God's promises, even when we say how wonderful they are, Deep down, do we distrust His promises as well? It's an important question, and the passage we're going to look at this morning gives us great encouragement to treat God's promises with absolute trust. We're in the book of Isaiah the prophet, and last week we heard about God's commission, the mission that God gave him. He was to call his people to trust God. And in our passage this morning, we're given an example of Isaiah doing that. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. 
If you're using a church Bible, it's page 692. In the larger print Bibles, 1070. Isaiah chapter 7. And we'll read the first 17 verses of this chapter. <clears throat> when Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. But they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told... Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive. And give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and in the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. This is God's word. Now, none of you came here this morning for a history lesson 
or for a geography lesson. I know that. We came to hear from God. But to understand this part of God's Word, we do need to grasp a little bit of history and geography. Five years have passed since Isaiah's vision in chapter 6. We heard there that King Uzziah died. Ahaz has just begun to rule as king of Judah. And he immediately faces a crisis. And we need a map to understand the crisis. There's the map. And we need four points on our map. Here's Judah, the center of the action. And at this point in time, the world superpower is Assyria. Assyria has ambitions to expand their empire to the west. And that is making Aram, also known as Syria, and it is making Israel, also known as Ephraim, very, very nervous. Judah and Israel used to be one united kingdom, but a couple of hundred years before this point in time, they split into two separate kingdoms. So we have three kingdoms here to the west of Assyria. And two of those kingdoms, Aram and Israel, have put their heads together and they have decided they would all be stronger together. If they formed an alliance, maybe big Assyria would leave them alone. So Aram and Israel get together and they ask Judah to join them. Ahaz, the king of Judah, he thinks about their offer, and he decides even the three of them together wouldn't be enough to scare off the Assyrians. So Ahaz says no to Israel and Aram. He would rather annoy them, he decides, than annoy the much bigger, much more powerful Assyrians. He turns down their offer. But instead of taking no for an answer, Aram and Israel decide that Judah needs a bit of firm persuasion to join their alliance. They need a bit of military persuasion. Verse 1 of our passage apparently describes an initial attack they make on Judah. King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel. They attack Judah, but that attack is not as successful as they had hoped it would be. Verse 2 describes preparations for a new attack on Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is Israel. Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. We'll come back to those shaking hearts in a moment. But the most significant thing in this verse is the phrase, the house of David. It will be repeated in the second half of the passage. This is the key to all of this. This is the first time the name David has appeared in the book. And it appears here at this time of crisis as a reminder of a promise God made. Over 200 years before this, David from the tribe of Judah was king of a united kingdom of Israel and Judah together. And at the peak of his reign, 
David wanted to build a house for God, a temple in Jerusalem. But God responded to David's desire by promising instead that God would build a house for David, a dynasty for David. We find that promise back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's worth uh, looking up later and reading for yourself, but here is just a part of that chapter, a part of the promise. It's delivered to David by the prophet Nathan. Nathan says to David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. And I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. It's an incredible promise. Through David's descendants, David's house, God will establish an everlasting kingdom. And now, here in our passage, during this international crisis that threatens Judah and Jerusalem, here we have a reminder of that 200-year-old promise. In verse 2, the house of David. But Ahaz, the current king of Judah, who is a direct descendant of King David, Ahaz seems to have forgotten the promise. And his people seem to have forgotten the promise as well. Verse 2 says, the alliance between Aram and Ephraim causes the hearts of Ahaz and his people to shake like trees in the wind. We've all probably experienced what that feels like when we read that description. We've all been terrified in that way. At some point or another, we've all had hearts that are shaking like trees in the wind. But God is going to send Isaiah into this situation with a call to trust God's promise to David. Verses 1 to 9 tell us that shaking hearts are called to trust God's promise of an unshakable kingdom. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Ramalia. In this culture, names are significant. The name Isaiah means salvation is of the Lord. And Sheer Jashub means a remnant will return. The NIV has a footnote which points that out to us. And if Sheer Jashub sounds like a strange thing to call your son, wait till you hear the name of Isaiah's other son. We'll get to him in chapter 8 in a couple of weeks' time. But actually, the name Sheer Jashub, a remnant will return, That boy's name was probably inspired by the vision Isaiah was given several years before this. Chapter 6 told us how Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne. 
And that vision ended with the Lord telling Isaiah, Isaiah, most people are going to reject your call to repentance. But a minority, a remnant, will repent. They will return to me. That word of God is now embodied and walking around in Isaiah's son, Sheer Jashub. A remnant will return. So when Ahaz then looks up and he sees this father and son walking towards him, Isaiah is already getting a message. Salvation is of the Lord. And Ahaz, are you going to be among that remnant who return to the Lord? We might wonder, what is Ahaz doing at this aqueduct of the upper pool and the road to the launderer's field? What he's doing is he's inspecting Jerusalem's water supply. That was the city's weak point always. Water had to be brought into the city from outside, and that made the city vulnerable during a time of siege. If the Arameans and Israels do come and they put Jerusalem under siege, the water supply is going to be vital. So Ahaz is out there preparing for the worst. And there's nothing wrong with that. But God knows Ahaz is doing more than sorting out the water supply. Ahaz is in the process of taking a much more drastic step. He's going to ask the mighty Assyrian Empire for help against Aram and Israel. We know that from elsewhere in the Old Testament. Ahaz had not wanted to annoy Assyria by joining the alliance of Aram and Israel, but now, now that Aram and Israel are on his doorstep, he's so afraid of what they might do to him, Ahaz is actually reaching out to Assyria for help. God has no issue with Ahaz fixing up Jerusalem's water pipes. That's just wisdom. But God has a big issue with Ahaz looking to Assyria as his savior. For one thing, it's absolute foolishness to do that. One writer has pointed out, this is like three mice having a fight, and one of them goes and asks for help from the cat. What sharp claws you have, Mr. Cat. What big teeth you have, Mr. Cat. Can you come and help get these other two guys off me, please? Aram, Israel, and Judah are the three mice in this picture, and Assyria is the cat. Inviting the cat to get involved is bound to backfire on Judah. But there's a much more significant reason why Ahaz shouldn't go looking to Assyria for salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. And in the background to all this is the Lord's promise to the house of David. The promise that God will establish an everlasting kingdom through David's descendants. As we said, that promise is the key to this passage and this situation. Ahaz is one of David's descendants. If Ahaz will just trust God's promise and look to God for salvation, he will find salvation. That's the message Isaiah delivers here by the aqueduct outside Jerusalem. In verses 4 to 9, he says, 
the plans of Aram and Ephraim will come to nothing. Yes, they want to oust you, Ahaz. And yes, they want to put their own guy on the throne. Verse 6 calls him the son of Tabeel. But don't worry about Aram and Ephraim, Ahaz. They are as much of a threat as two smoldering stubs of firewood. They're more smoke than fire. Not only will they fail in their attempt to overthrow you, Ahaz, but verse 8, within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. In other words, Israel, your neighbor to the north, is not going to last. Don't fear those two enemies, Aram and Israel. And certainly don't go getting the cat involved in this fight. Assyria, the cat will not be your salvation, Ahaz. The Lord says, I'm your salvation. Remember who you are. You are from the house of David. You are heir to the promise of an everlasting kingdom. If only you'll trust that promise, Ahaz. If only you'll trust me, the Lord says. If you refuse to trust me, there's no hope for you. At the end of verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Actually, that sentence is an echo of the promise to David. That promise was full of references to God establishing David's kingdom and making David's kingdom stand firm. The hearts of King Ahaz and his people are shaking before the enemies of Aram and Israel, and that is understandable. As human beings, we're not made of stone. Things do stress us. Our hearts do get shaky sometimes. But here, shaking hearts are called to trust God's promise of an unshakable kingdom. God's people are not called to live in a fantasy world. When we face a threat or when we face a daunting situation, we're not called to bury our head in the sand and pretend that threat or that daunting situation isn't there. Of course not. But we are called to trust God's promise. That He is with us. That our salvation comes from Him. That His kingdom is an unshakable kingdom. We're called to trust that when we belong to God's kingdom, our security is unshakable. As we trust Him, He will bring us safely through whatever it is that threatens to overwhelm us. That is God's word to us. And it is God's word to King Ahaz long before us. It's fine to take practical steps like protecting your water supply or whatever else, but don't go looking for another savior. That's the message, but in the rest of this passage, Ahaz refuses to heed the message. And he learns God will still keep his promise. God will deliver his unshakable kingdom, but Ahaz will not be included. Verses 10 to 17 tell us, hard hearts will not stop the fulfillment of God's promise. 
In verse 11, through Isaiah, God makes an amazing offer to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. God is offering to provide an immediate guarantee of his promise, an immediate faith-strengthening sign. Ahaz can pick whatever sign he wants. It seems he can literally pick whatever he wants. Anything in the deepest depths or the highest heights. Ahaz can name it and God will do it. God will do it as evidence that he will keep his promise to the house of David. If you were in that situation, what would you choose? Well, Ahaz chooses nothing. And he makes his refusal sound quite pious, quite godly. In verse 12, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. That sounds good. And in fact, the Old Testament law did say, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So what's wrong with what Ahaz says here? Why is this not godly? What's wrong with it is, the Lord himself has offered a sign to Ahaz. It would not be putting the Lord to the test. The reality is, Ahaz knows if he did specify a sign and the Lord provided that sign, then Ahaz would be forced into abandoning his plan of getting help from Assyria, the cat. This meeting with Isaiah is a public meeting. It's out in the open. The king's attendants are standing by hearing all of this. If Ahaz asks for a sign and God provides it, then Ahaz will have to do what Isaiah is calling him to do. He'll have to trust God instead of calling in the cat. So Ahaz says, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want a sign. Ahaz has already made up his mind who he's going to trust. And it's not God. It's not the Lord who made the promise to David. And so Isaiah tells Ahaz... Ahaz, you will still get a sign, but it will be a sign the Lord chooses. And you will neither understand it, nor will you live to see it fulfilled. Look at that starting in verse 13. After Ahaz has refused to ask for a sign, verse 13, Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. What does this mean? 
Now, I know when we hear this, our minds jump to the New Testament. But here, in its original context, what does this mean? Well, some people have read it and thought, however this is applied later in the New Testament, it has to have a meaning here, 700 years before the New Testament. So maybe there was a child born around this time who fits the bill. But there really isn't a child who fits the bill. There's certainly no child born at this time who's given the title Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we can be sure if there had been such a child, Isaiah would have told us about him. Some people have looked at the beginning of chapter 8 and they've noticed that the birth of another son to Isaiah is mentioned there in chapter 8. But his name is certainly not Emmanuel, nor is he ever referred to as Emmanuel. And assuming she's the same wife who gave birth to Sheer Jashub, the lady was not a virgin either when she had the child. There is simply no candidate at this time who fits what these verses describe. And they certainly do not fit the further descriptions of the child we're going to find in chapters to come. And that has caused some people to scratch their heads and ask, well then, how can this be assigned to Ahaz? If this is talking about a child who will come long after Ahaz, how can it be called a sign for Ahaz? The answer is, this is a sign of judgment for Ahaz. In verse 11, Ahaz was offered a faith-building sign, a sign he would see there and then if he asked for it. But Isaiah refused that faith-building sign because his heart was hard. He didn't want to trust God's promise. He preferred to trust his own ideas of where salvation would come from. And so, here in verse 14, the sign that's referred to will not be a faith-building sign for Ahaz. It will be a sign that doesn't even make sense to him. And it will be a sign he will not live to see. The only thing that will make sense to Ahaz is the name. Emmanuel, God with us. Ahaz is being told, God will fulfill his promise to the house of David. He will be with his people. There will be an everlasting kingdom. But because your heart was hard, Ahaz, because you refused to put your trust in God's promises, the sign of Emmanuel will do you no good. Is there anything else for us to learn from this prophecy in its context here? What does it mean when it talks in verse 15 about the boy eating curds and honey? What does it mean in verse 16 about the land being laid waste before he's old enough to reject the wrong and choose the right? Well, that last reference is simply a reference to growing up. This child, Emmanuel, will grow up in a situation where he eats curds and honey. Curds are soured milk, so a bit like yogurt. And curds and honey might sound like a bit of a delicacy. 
But in fact, later in chapter 7, beyond where we read to today, we're told that curds and honey are famine food. Curds and honey are what you eat when there are no crops in the field and no grain in the storehouses. Curds and honey might taste really good, but if that's all you've got, then the land has been laid waste. Imagine if all you had to eat was honeycomb ice cream. It'd be wonderful for about two days. And then it would be sickening. And you'd soon notice the lack of real nourishing food. And so here, Isaiah says to Ahaz, when this child Emmanuel comes, he will come to a land that has been laid waste and has not recovered. He will come to a depressed land. A land that is in gloom. And yes, Ahaz, that will be partly because of the disobedience of your neighbors to the north, but it will also be because of your sin, Ahaz, in looking to Assyria as your savior. At the end of verse 17, Isaiah says, God will bring the king of Assyria. He will come as you've been hoping, Ahaz, but he will not come as the one who saves you. You'll come as the one who delivers God's judgment on you. We'll hear more about that next time. Because of the hard hearts of Ahaz and his people, the land will be laid waste. But that will not stop the fulfillment of God's promise. We've been assured of that with this tantalizing hint of God's long-term purposes through Emmanuel. In the following chapters, we'll hear more about this child. Chapter 9, we'll call him the mighty God. Other passages will tell us about his kingdom. So although this reference to the child seems to come out of the blue here, even though it seems to come out of the blue, it does not stay out of the blue. More details are coming very shortly, and they leave us in no doubt this is no ordinary child. This child will be more than a sign of God with us. He will be God with us. This child will not simply point to God's salvation. He will bring God's salvation. This child will not just reassure us about God's promise to the house of David. He will fulfill God's promise to the house of David. This child, a descendant of David will be king of an everlasting kingdom. He will be the lion of Judah. Here in Isaiah 7, the promise of this child is a promise that hard hearts and human sin will not frustrate God's purposes. It's also a warning that those who are like Ahaz, those who refuse to trust God, they will not enjoy the fulfillment of God's purposes. And having heard the promise of Emmanuel here in Isaiah 7, in the context of reminders about the promise to David, having heard that, it is no surprise at all when in the first sentence of the New Testament, Matthew says, let me tell you about Jesus, the son of David. 
It's no surprise when Luke tells us Jesus' human father, Joseph, belonged to the house of David. It's no surprise that when the angel tells Mary she's going to have a child, Mary raises her hand and says, excuse me, but how will this be since I am a virgin? It's no surprise when the angel goes on to say about the child Mary is going to have that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. None of that surprises us because we have read Isaiah. It's also no surprise when Matthew says in the passage we read earlier this morning, this child, born to a descendant of David, born to a virgin, this is Emmanuel. God with us. It's no surprise to read that in Matthew because we have read Isaiah. When we read the New Testament, we see the trustworthiness of our God. We know he keeps his promises. And so when we read on from Matthew chapter 1, which tells us Jesus is God with us, when we read on all the way to the very last sentence of Matthew's gospel, we find this promise from the crucified and risen Jesus. I am with you always to the very end of the age. When the one promised in Isaiah tells us that, we believe him, don't we? God promised Emmanuel would come, and he did. So we believe Emmanuel when he says he will always be God with us. Even when the stress of our circumstances seems overwhelming, even when our hearts are shaking like trees shaking in the wind, when it seems God isn't going to bring us through, and we really ought to look around for another Savior, even in those times, we remember what we know. We remember what we have seen in Scripture. God keeps His promises. Emmanuel has come as promised. Jesus is God with us. Through faith in Him, we belong to His everlasting kingdom. And He is with us always in the person of His Holy Spirit. So when your heart is shaking, take time to remember what you know. Take time to remember what you have seen in Scripture. The evidence that God keeps His promises. When we share the Lord's Supper together, that's what we're doing. We are remembering what we know. We have found our Savior. He has done all that was needed for our salvation. And now He is with us always. Before we share this remembrance meal, we're going to sing the truth that we've been thinking about in this passage. The truth of Emmanuel. We are never alone because Christ is here. <laughs>